Supreme Court is poised to overturn a landmark 1978 law on affirmative action and even a more recent Supreme Court decision involving race-conscious college admissions. Let's go to CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum, who joins us live now. Arguments went on for uh, five hours because they had two cases. I I listened to a lot of it, and the promoters of affirmative action seem to get tangled up when it came to whether it's okay to use check boxes or whether they should just consider race if the student brings it up in the college essay. What's your read on where the the justices are on this issue? Well, the lawyers that were representing both North Carolina, University of North Carolina and Harvard were very much on the run yesterday, for sure. You're quite right, uh, Dave. Um, uh, you know, you were hearing things that, remember, this is not the first time the Supreme Court has been revisiting affirmative action. There were three other cases before this. And in each of those instances, everyone sort of took the granted, well, we can maybe make some tweaks. But as long as the the college has a, uh, a, a compelling interest in uh, uh, diversity, diversity was the key word, right? So yeah. as long as they have a compelling interest and as long as they narrowly tailor these classifications to achieve diversity. Well, yesterday, Dave, you know, you heard conservatives going, I don't know what diversity means. Yeah. Like that, like the, the wheels went off the bus. Like, what do you mean you know what it means? We've been talking about it for 40 years. The one African-American male on the court, Justice Thomas, who's never, you know, bought into affirmative action, has said, look, I don't even know what it means. I've heard it for all these years. I don't know what it means. And that was a problem. It was also a problem when some of the other conservative justices said, is there an end point here? <laughs> I mean, talk about a sort of. Yeah, in other words, they were trying to they're trying to say, how do you know when you've achieved your goal? And nobody had a good answer to that. Right. Well, part of the reason was like, you know, 22 years ago in an earlier affirmative action case, Sandra Day O'Connor said, I believe in 25 years, there won't be a reason to have affirmative action. She just was a very famous line because she was saying 25 years from now, we will achieve whatever it is we're achieving. So they were all picking up on that saying We're closing in on 25. It doesn't sound like you guys are done. You know, and that was that was, you know, comes across as a very hostile as if this is, you know, racial classifications in perpetuity and that people will always have to check a box. And and Asian-Americans who essentially brought this case are going to always be disadvantaged because when it comes to the admissions process, there are going to be some boxes that they're not going to get pushed because, you know, like, for instance, the evidence apparently a trial was that there were these categories of like personality or courage or things like that where they did poorly on. Yeah, right. And you're going, what? Well, they're looking for what? ways to use proxies for race, right? By looking at the essays and saying, did this person show courage? Have they faced oppression in their lives? And um, and uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson actually said, well, then, are you saying that if, if we if we say affirmative action is illegal, would students then have to deliberately mask their racial identity yeah. to avoid a, a prejudicial, uh, appearing prejudicial to the admissions board? So, yeah. so where do you think this yeah. could lead that? So if, if the Supreme Court rules as it appears to be ready to rule that affirmative action is, is illegal, um, how does that change things? Well, the lawyers representing the schools, Dave, all said – if affirmative action goes away, if we can't make race-conscious admissions decisions, we will have 33% fewer African-Americans and Hispanics. That's a huge number. 
right? Mm-hmm. 33% fewer people in that those categories. One of the conservative justices, I can't recall who at this moment, said, well, can't you achieve the same uh, objective through a race-neutral way of doing it? Like, for instance, one of them said, marching band, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why can't you create the categories and say, look, if you find really good African-American oboe player or tuba player or drummer, put, do it that way, you know, or for that matter, uh, financial aid, right? Why doesn't this reach the socioeconomic categories as opposed to the racial categories? That's something we could deal with, that you came up with more financial aid to help people. What we can't deal with is this sort of deliberate isolation on skin color, because it either violates the Equal Protection Clause of the uh, first um, uh, of the 14th Amendment as applied to North Carolina, because that's a state school, or Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which applies to Harvard. They were just trying to say we need to get away from the racial category, right. because that's what the Constitution in Title VI it forbids. And in fact, what we're doing is seemingly is we are discriminating on a basis of race against Chinese yeah. people. But we're trying to do it. That, that's the problem, right? The, the argument is if you tip the scale in favor of one race, then you're tipping it against another. And then the question comes up, OK, so if you get rid of affirmative action and suddenly the uh, racial makeup is out of whack with the population, then what do you do? For example, here in Washington State, we got rid of affirmative action. So I'm looking at the current numbers for the University of Washington. A UW mm-hmm. Seattle campus, 39.7% white, 22% Asian, 8.4% Hispanic, um, 6.6% two or more races, whatever that means, 3.15% black or African American, and 0.44% American Indian or Alaskan Native. So, uh, Yeah, Dave, the lawyers representing the universities love that statistic, right? Yeah. Because they're saying, are you kidding? That is a negligible number, and yeah. it does not represent the proportion of uh, people of color in the country. They were making arguments like it even affects the military, right? That people yeah. need to know that in the military, that, there, that if you're an African-American, there are officers who are African-Americans, right? That they need to see, right? That's the idea of the equality of this country. The problem with that is that this country always believed it was a meritocracy. Affirmative action said, look, this is a nation that for for half its you know years was a slave nation. And then Jim Crow, something has to be done. That's why you saw this sort of exasperation among some of the uh, conservatives that said, but what's the end point? Right. And no one answered that. No one said 12 years. <laughs> no one said. And that's where the I think people got hung up. CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. Thane, thank you. Anytime. Oh, Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. Drivers have been telling us for months that we are back to pre-pandemic levels on the roads, including the toll roads, and now the data is in. Let's go to Chris. It is quite clear that our traffic volumes are close to matching pre-pandemic levels now. When the Washington Department of Transportation stopped tracking the daily data, we were only 3% from March of 2020 levels, and that data collection stopped in July. So over the last couple of months, I think we filled in pretty close uh, to back 
to where we used to be. Most drivers will tell you that there is no doubt that we are back, but not all roads are created equally, of course. It has taken more time for some told facilities to come back. We've talked about the 99 tunnel and the struggles that it is having. The 520 bridge is still well below pre-pandemic levels, but it's not the case for 405 and 167. Like clockwork, we usually hit the $10 max on the southbound 405 out of Linwood about four, uh, 745 each morning. And by my stats, which are anecdotal, I mean, it's just me collecting things and marking down the days of the month that we are going. We've hit 17 of the 21 commuting days in October. We hit the $10 max during the morning. So that's pretty significant. State tolling director Ed Berry told the Washington State Transportation Commission last month. 167 did not drop as far and has come back quicker and faster. And we see that you know, similar to 2019 volumes in the 167 hot lanes in August of 22 and almost the same amount of express toll lanes traffic uh, in 2019. So according to those latest stats, the 405 toll lane is not quite back to 100%, but it's close. And let's not forget, it used to hit the $10 max like clockwork about 645 each morning prior to the pandemic. Now it's about an hour later. So what about the revenues? For 15 straight months, Starting in March of 2020, the toll revenues for 405 came in at less than $1 million. The 2019 forecast had been expecting between two and a half and three million dollars a month. So you're seeing how much they lost there. The expected revenues on 167 were about double what they were, uh, what they were expected to be generating. And so they were not doing very well. But Barry says that is turning around. We're still well below the 2019 November forecast of what might have been in gross toll revenue for these corridors. However, we can see that from a revenue perspective, both 405 and 167 are at or exceeding some of the updated uh, June 22 forecast. So what they did during the pandemic is once they realized kind of what was happening out there and how long we were going to kind of be in this, they kind of started reforecasting. They're like, okay, we're down so much. Let's think, okay, maybe we expect this going forward. They didn't hit that. Then they're like, okay, let's reforecast again. And now they're starting to hit that a little bit. So that's positive news. Uh, So where does that leave us on funding the ongoing tolling expansions of 405 and 167. Deputy State Treasurer Jason Richter told the Transportation Commission that an influx of cash from the legislature last session has kept the funding or kept the funding for these projects in the green. I think compared to last year in our discussions, um, things have changed quite a bit, mostly because of the uh, legislative appropriation of the $268 million from Move Ahead Washington. That's Coming early enough in the project that it's allowed us to push back some of our bonding to a a time where there's higher projected revenue. So that means the projects currently on the board are still considered funded. Here are the latest timelines. The widening of 405 between Renton and Bellevue should be finished in 2024. Adding a new tow lane between 522 and Bothell and 527 should be done in 2026. And the complete overhaul of the 167 hot lane system should be finished in 2025. Can we still say then that these this expansion is being funded by the people who use it or 
is it being subsidized now by the it's whole state? It's now being subsidized by the whole state in the in the move ahead Washington. Now, let's not forget that all uh, a certain portion, not the entire funding of these these expansions was supposed to be generated mm-hmm. by the tolls. And so that one influx of cash from the legislature in the move ahead Washington basically kind of fills in the gap of what they lost. So it's going to be paid back then? Well, no. No, it's not a loan. It's, uh, they're, it's, it's part of the... That's a gift. That's, it's, well, it's a gift that will go along with all the increased uh, rates that we're going to see uh, because they have to pay for that ex- move ahead Washington package, which includes, as some people say, up to a 45 cent increase in the gas tax. Uh, just imagine what that's going to do if, yeah. you know, to, to meet the carbon goals set out that will pay for this. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, do we have any data on whether... Uh, tolling or high gas prices have increased carpooling or not? Because wasn't that supposed to be part of the effect here, too? Yeah, it was supposed to be part of the effect, but I think one of the things that we've seen is as transit is slowly getting back to normal, we're still seeing some people who are driving solo now who might have been in a bus or a train before coming out of the pandemic because maybe they're not going every day. Maybe they're just going once or twice a week and then they're driving. So there's some, you know, the driver behavior has not quite shaken itself out as we move out of the pandemic yet. Uh, but, and again, I don't have the, you know, the hard data. This is just going on my gut in front of what I see and from my, what I hear from drivers about what they're doing out there, which is a little different than what we were doing in, you know, March of 2020. So, uh, yeah, so it's, it's hard to tell exactly what everybody is doing. And what are, there are so many different variable factors into where we are right now. Yeah. And we still don't see a recovery in transit, or are you seeing a recovery? Yeah, well, they're definitely, I mean, you look at Sound Transit's number for light rail, and they've they've definitely shot up significantly. Uh-huh. But then that also corresponds with the fact that they opened up from the U District to, to Northgate. So obviously, there's more opportunity for people to do, whether they're the same amount of people coming up from Angle Lake as there were, or the same amount. It's hard to kind of separate that data out. All we see is that the overall boardings are up and doing well, but we now have more service. So, that I mean, that yeah. would make sense that that number would go up. But yeah, there, it's coming back. It's just some of the longer buses, bus trips are not quite coming back as, as much. Some of the bus service is not, uh, people are not back as much, but uh, the light rail is definitely seeing a bump. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien along with Dave Ross and Chris Sullivan. Uh, we have talked about four-day work weeks before and if they work for us adults, but do four-day school weeks make sense for kids? For the answer to that, we have Emily Morton with NWEA, formerly known as the Northwest Education Association, uh, but now they've grown outside the Northwest to talk about what they found when they looked at states that had four-day school week. So Emily, what did you find? Thanks, Colleen. So great to be here. I just had a recent study come out looking across six different states, and we find that we find effects vary. We do, on average, find negative small effects. Really importantly, these effects are much smaller in rural districts across these states than they are in non-rural districts. And by non-rural, we really mean like town or suburban districts, because there are no urban districts that use the schedule. I see. Okay, where was this studied? I think I saw Idaho. That might be the closest to us where this was done. So we use six different states. The majority of the districts in this study are actually from Colorado, Mm. but 
There's lots of states across the U.S. that use the four-day school week, mostly concentrated on the western half of the U.S. Okay, got it. So what was the catalyst for studying this? Is it to, I know there's so many issues related to student sleep, uh, teacher retention, uh, whether academically it's, it's feasible to only do four days a week. What was the main motivation for doing this? Yes, that's a really interesting question and something that's actually changed over time from what we can tell. Research from 2019 found that most school districts were reporting financial reasons for doing this. They thought they would save money on the, on the schedule um, and felt that they had to save money based on their, their budget. But we find that it really doesn't have much of a savings. One of my first studies on the, on the schedules finds that the policy saves districts only about 2% of their budget. That's not to mean that it's totally inconsequential. It could be similar. It's actually very similar in terms of cost savings to some of the other common cost cutting strategies, like increasing in class size by one student. But it's not like it's going to save the district lots and lots of money. And we actually hear from districts anecdotally that that's not why they're doing it anymore. The main reason is that they're continuing on them, I think, is often because they love them. So we hear like the the satisfaction ratings among students and parents on the four-day school week are, are sort of off the charts in terms of social policies. Often over about 90% of them would continue to stay on a four-day school week. Um, and most recently, what we're hearing about new districts starting to adopt the schedule is that they're doing it for to, to recruit um, and to retain teachers. So that's not something that's been looked at empirically yet and is a big next question for this research. And what about sleep? Yeah, so that's a great question. That's something we did look at as part of a study. It was part of a, that came out of the Rand Corporation that did a, a study with uh, three different states, Idaho, New Mexico, and Oklahoma. And that study finds that we do, that students do report getting a little bit more sleep. There's an increase, but it's uh, not, it's, it's significant only among um, elementary school students and not among middle and high school students. So we don't exactly know why that's the case. It's just a rite of passage to be sleep deprived as a teenager, I guess. <laughs> now, in, in our, my school district here in Washington State, we just came off of a full week of half days. And childcare wise, that was a nightmare. We're lucky that my husband gets to work from home, but sometimes he has meetings in the middle of the day and can't pick them up. For me, I don't know how it's sustainable childcare wise to always have that one day a week where you don't have anybody to watch your kid. Yeah, so that's what we hear about almost always when we bring mm-hmm. up this schedule among folks who often live in suburban and urban communities. Um, and I think one of the key facts here, again, is that context, the local community. Thinking about the key industries that folks are employed by in these areas, often one of the major employers is actually the school district. Right. Or there's other other employers that might be uh, also running not sort of traditional Monday through Friday uh, nine to five schedules. They might be doing uh, the dairies might be a common industry where they're where again shift work is maybe more common where you work three days on or and, and a day off and something like that. Um, oil is another industry that's often large in these areas. So parents' schedules may actually look pretty different, such that childcare may not be as big of a concern when when we go to these communities. We don't hear that. And I think another really key piece of that in these communities is that many of these communities are multi-generational and they have either extended family, either grandparents or aunts and uncles who live nearby. Um, And there may be at least one of those 
family members who is either working for the school district or working from the home on, on that extra day. So childcare is actually sort of remarkably not a major concern in most of these areas on that last day. So it sounds like if you live in a smaller town or community, it would be highly beneficial to everyone involved to move to a four-day week. So I think that's their perception. Everyone really likes it. Um, I think what we worry about are a few things. One is achievement. It's not having positive effects on achievement. And there may be pretty small negative effects. Even though they're pretty small, that's something that we'd certainly put in the con column, right? Even if it's a small negative effect, it's a negative effect. And those effects may, we have some suggestive evidence that they may grow more negative over time. That's something to weigh into the total picture of the four-day school week. That's not to say that it's always a bad choice and communities can implement them differently and and maybe make them more or less effective. Um, One thing that we see is having more instructional time. So using the four-day school week, but still maintaining the amount of time that students are doing by making those four days longer to the point that you're still, you know, still having the same amount of class time or even more time makes the four-day school week more effective for academics. So that's, but that's one thing that I'd be worried about. And the other thing that I would be worried about that we don't have great information on is how it affects subpopulations of students who might be more disadvantaged by this schedule. And we don't have great information on that yet. So students who don't have a safe environment at home, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. we worry about them that maybe now they're spending an extra day at home. Students who don't have access to healthy food or or food or food insecure. um, We also worry about them being home an extra day on that on that longer weekend. So we need more information about those populations of students and how this schedule affects them. Emily Morton is with NWEA. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Your Daily Dose of Kindness, sponsored by Baird. Parts of Southwest Florida, as we know, have been left unrecognizable in the wake of Hurricane Ian. But there's a restaurant in Sanibel, Florida, bringing some joy to first responders and people on the island. CBS's Claire Galt has the story. One month, a lot of volunteers, a lot of long lines, and a lot of hot meals. The shack of Sanibel has been outside every day since the island opened up, serving meals to anyone who needs them. Started serving on a little 22-inch Weber uh, the Saturday, perhaps, after... uh, It opened up. I think we cleaned out our building on Wednesday and Thursday once residents were allowed to come back. And I think we were up and running Friday just with cold drinks out of our cooler. And then it sort of morphed into, I think uh, our busiest day has been maybe like 1,800 meals served. First responders, linemen. It's one of those things when you're doing 12, 14-hour days cleaning up destruction, you know, to have a meal that somebody cooked to take care of you to make sure you're doing well is awesome. You don't eat so many finger foods or uh, snacks, so to speak, uh, in MREs until you're just flat out tired of it. So <laughs> when when you do get a hot meal, I mean, it's literally that's the best thing ever. Today, it was meatball subs. Food's delicious. Very, very good. The food is excellent. They're going to keep doing it, too, as long as they need to. It's kind of like a little ray of sunshine in their day. It's going to be a while before uh, the island is fully functional again. And just kind of trying to keep that sense of community is really important. People on the island aren't complaining. Every, Every day. Sort of send you Every day you've been here. Yes. Yeah. It looks like love is taking care of it. Anytime you have a meal from love, you always have a great meal. That is CBS's Claire Galt. 
748 and now from the Jim Ursula show, which starts at nine. Here he is, G. Scott. Do you want to talk about this? Because, I mean, you huh. could have a rush on your home next year. That's right. You tell us what you Halloween. did. Well, I have been telling people on the Gene Ursula show that I want to be known by the kids. Because when I was growing up, the neighborhoods, you knew. Right now, I'm saying it right now. You know the house. Look back 20 yeah. years, 30 years ago. You can visualize the house that had either the good candy or the nice house that was decorated. I don't have the decorations of the home. Mm. And so and I noticed that my neighborhood, there's not that many kids. So this year, yesterday, I went to it. My buddy's house and I, all of their kids. I call them my nieces and nephews. They were all hang out. And uh, my wife brought candy bags for them, full of candy for them, big life-size bars in there and everything. Life-size bars? Well, I call them life-size. Okay. <laughs> Exaggeration. Anyway, um, so I went to the bank and grabbed a whole bunch of cash. Yeah. And I grabbed the cash. And so what I loved about some of the kids in my friend's neighborhood is some of them were coming. To, my friends left a bucket, I mean, a, a bowl out with the candy, yeah. with the little note there. Mm-hmm. And a few of the kids would come up with their parents, and they'd come, and they would take two. Yeah. And so I went out there. Here's some cash for being honest. So fun. How did they react when you would hand them cash? Man, they loved it. Of course they They, did. They're looking at me, and the parents are like, thank you. (laughs) Another trend of alternative candy is uh, apparently it's been going on for a few years, and I I spotted one person who did it where they have a bowl of candy, and then they just put a potato in the middle, and more often, like 95% of the time, the kids are like, potato! Like, it's just exciting to get something (laughs) new. And they take the potato? They take the potato. So that's what I've learned. That is the trick for Halloween. They love something new. So then when my niece and nephews, I call them my niece and nephews, they they all went around. They went trick-or-treating. And then when they came back, I had cash in my pocket and they didn't know it. And so I said, okay, Uncle G now needs candy tax. Mm -hmm. I need all you guys. Get over here front and center. Bring your bags. I need a candy tax. So at first, they started to give me one, two. Probably like a payday. And I'm like, sure. Are you sure? Like, I'm looking at your bag and I'm seeing all the candy you have. Are you sure that's all the candy tax that you want to pay? Finally, one of the older ones came and just made it rain with candy. (laughs) Bam. I said, okay, great. Everybody on the board. So based upon the candy tax you gave me, I pulled out cash and gave them cash for them giving me candy. And then I gave them their candy back. You're, You're the like best, the host Uncle of Let's G. Make a Deal. Yeah. Man, I just I just want the kids to love Uncle G. <laughs> yeah. That's all. I think you're well on your way. You know, you just want to bless the kids. But anyways, I, I don't know. For me, when I was younger, it was always cool when you got either the, the big candy bars. Yes, I call them life-size because... <laughs> They are life-size when you get them that big when yes. you're younger, right? They're the size of your head when yeah. you're younger, yeah. Uh, Dave, did you did you get some candy? Did you got some, were no. they trick-or-treating in Mercer well, Island? Well, they, they do, but we were we were out last evening, and so I, I was, my idea was, you know, to put the pot out like I've done in past years, but that was, that was vetoed. Why? Why? Because uh, last time we did it, uh, the candy was gone along with the pot, so... We decided not to do it this year. Just turn out all the lights and, and hey, like, yeah. wait, you know. But I found out. But, but okay, so um, I had another friend that text. 
and they put the bowl out, and they said the kids were ruthless. They came yeah. and just took the candy, yeah. and it was gone. He was mad. But the kid in my I'm buddy's neighborhood mad. down in Fife, these yeah. were some little honest kids. That's great. But did he leave a note out that says, like, one or two? Because, like, if there's a bowl of candy out and no sign, and, and like, I don't blame the kid. This is their night. This is the so, night they get to go crazy. So you're basically, you're that parent. You're that parent that <laughs> no. allows your child to go no. there and take a bunch. No, if I'm with my kids, uh-huh. I will definitely... You know, say, you like, hey, it says take some, so that's like a handful. What if right? there's no note? If there's no note and yeah. I'm not there? No, no. If there's no note and you're standing there and your children course, are there. Then, of course, I would limit them to some. But when you're p- on your own and you're running around with friends, we can't keep, like, listen, the kids aren't out shooting anybody. They're not, they're not spray painting. They're not, to- they're getting candy. Let them have some fun. But what about others? Yeah, the other kid. The next other kid kids? Go to the next house. <laughs> Why do I have a feeling, Colleen, that when you were younger, you used to take extra candy? I've, I have been known to do that. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to lie. Hmm. So a good childhood. Is the, is the candy tax man going to be back next Halloween? Oh, for sure. Yeah. But, but, but one thing about uh, my niece, like I said, my, my friend's kids, I'm always asking for tax. I ask for candy tax. My goodness. I ask for food tax. Like a capitalist uncle. Yes, when I food tax. <laughs> I, I want to eat off the plate. Now, there, there's only one of them that is very honest all the time. It's my, my, my buddy's little one. Her name's Mila. She always, she'll come up to me with her plate and she'll say, I'm ready to pay my food tax. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and, I I, and, I, and I need a bite of something. <laughs> Just remember, your your taxation policy is going to come back to haunt you when you run for office 20 years from now. So. That's right. Just be uh, careful. Uh, 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 yeah, that's a good point. Uh, be careful. Yeah. But you know what? I can I can petition to not have you see my taxes. That's true. Like that one guy <laughs> oh, does. Gosh. Yeah, that was breaking news. Yeah, we'll this be morning. talking about that later this <laughs> See you guys. G Scott, nine o'clock with Ursula Cairo News Radio. The number of shootings in King County continues to rise, but the number of people shot is actually down compared to last year. Here's the report from Cairo News Radio's Hannah Scott. The latest data comes from the King County Prosecutor Shots Fired project started back in 2016 to help keep cops and the public informed about the trends in local gun violence. Overall, shootings started to increase across the country after the pandemic. And Casey McNurthney with the prosecutor's office says this latest report provides no indication the trend is easing. When you compare the last three months... July, August, September, to the previous five quarters worth of data. What you'll see is that the number of shots fired investigations is up about 18%. And so people are shooting more, but the number of shooting victims is down about 5%. The numbers for the first three months of 2022 include 70 murder victims and 256 shooting victims who survived. While those two numbers are slightly below the data from 2021 in that same period, the total number of shots fired is higher for 2022. A deeper dive into the data also shows... 84% of the shooting victims were people of color. And that's just really a troubling stat. Another part of it is road rage. We're seeing more and more road rage shootings and also domestic violence. We saw a spike in domestic violence in 2020. And, and even though the numbers have gone down slightly, the, the range is still higher than it was pre-pandemic. And so that's certainly a, a concern. Prosecutors are concerned with the overall increase in what appears to be the random nature of shootings in 2022 and point to county growth and the significant spike in the number of guns in the county as possible contributing factors as well. 
both those they know about and those they don't. According to the Seattle Times, the King County Sheriff's Office ran 15,000 background checks for gun buyers in 2019. That number soared to nearly 26,000 by the end of last year, which gives cops and prosecutors some idea of what's on the streets, but does not account for the number of illegal ghost guns out there, usually without serial numbers, often used in crime. Kyra Radio's Hannah Scott. And on Tuesday mornings, we go live to the New York Times Washington correspondent, David Farenthold, who is not in Washington this morning, but he is in New York. You're not hanging around the federal court there or anything, are you? No, I, I am keeping an eye on that on that trial, the Trump Organization's trial this week. But no, I'm at the New York Times mothership visiting there for the first time. At the mothership. This is this your first time visiting the the uh, big flying saucer, huh? Yeah, we, we COVID, yeah, exactly. COVID's, you know, sort of in the past. So I'm getting to come, come up here and actually see the place in person. Well, good for you. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about the uh, the ruling involving Donald Trump's tax returns. It looks like it has been stayed, and I, I just sort of glanced over his his argument. He was basically saying that uh, they are asking you to expose the tax returns for the sake of exposure. So what about that? Well, so this is basically this is the House Ways and Means Committee, which oversees tax policy, has the right under law to request any taxpayers' uh, records, any individual taxpayers' records, to scrutinize them, to make sure the tax policy is working like it should. So they've been asking for Trump's tax returns since 2019, uh, and the case has been extremely delayed, both because Trump keeps appealing it and also because a Trump-appointed federal judge who had the case sat on the case for two and a half years before he ruled that, yes, indeed, Congress can get these records. Um, So now Trump has appealed them again. It's looking pretty likely like the delays in this will mean that it outlasts this Congress. And if Republicans take the House this year, then they will never get to see them. That said, you know, the, the, the point of this is not to expose an individual per- person's taxes. So, you know, I think Trump has probably a, a well-founded fear that his taxes would eventually get leaked. Yeah. So has Congress, uh, from what you've seen, given any kind of persuasive argument why there is a genuine legislative need for this information? Yeah, I mean, Trump is an extraordinary taxpayer. He's had huge losses, you know, some of the biggest losses in the country. He's done some very aggressive things, you know, even for the world of, you know, real estate that he lives in. So, you know, they make the point that maybe he's an outlier. Forget about being president, just he's an outlier as a taxpayer, and we should study what let him get away with this stuff. Um, but, you know, he's also made the case that, yeah, they're not saying they're going to expose my tax returns, but that's the real plan. Now, The New York Times has been, uh, of course, covering this uh, election, but also documenting the various threats of vi- violence, the number of election deniers who are on not just the federal ballot, but the state's state ballots as well. Um, is is it your feeling that there is that there is an atmosphere such that people who might otherwise have wanted to run for office, enter public service, are just too scared. You know, I don't I don't know of any examples when that's true, and I hope it's not true, but you can certainly see the atmosphere of sort of threat and violence and suspicion that surrounds, I mean, everybody from the candidates down to the election workers, people just administer the elections. So yes, I think if you got into politics these days, you have to know that there's an air of menace, especially if you're somebody who opposes Trump or the people allied with him, you know, that's directed at you. And I do, I do worry that that will keep some people from running. I, I don't know how closely you, you follow that that part of the the uh, the Trump story, but I mean, 
I, 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 I'm having trouble getting a handle on how serious they are. I understand January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my experience has been, you know, just in some of the e- emails uh, I get and, car- and the people I correspond with. The first email, you know, they come across as really aggressive. After you get into discussion, they turn to be regular people who have a different opinion than you. So how much of it is just that? And how much of it is people who are actually going to go all, all you know, uh, 1776, who actually plan to do violence to candidates like the wacko in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, it's the one in San Francisco, you know, it seems like not, you know, a person of sound mind. So, you know, he obviously was, you know, swam in the, you know, the Internet waters of the far right. But, you know, I don't think we can say that's a purely political act. The guy obviously had some mental problems. Uh, You know, I do think that there are, you know, thankfully, most of the people that sort of hear this violent rhetoric or hear this sort of hateful rhetoric don't act on it. But, you know, it only takes a few people to really make a big difference. I mean, look what happened on January 6th. A tiny fraction of the number of people who voted for Trump and supported him attacked the U.S. Capitol, but that was more than enough. Yeah. Now, on uh, some of the individual races, the ones that, uh, except for the Washington races that, uh, of course, we're following, the other ones are Fetterman, Oz uh, in Pennsylvania, which still looks like a toss-up. Is that what you're seeing? Well, the Times had a poll the other day saying that, that Fetterman was up a little bit. I still think that despite you know Fetterman's uncomfortable debate performance the other day, I still think he may have a small lead, at least in the polls. Really? The polls, yeah, the polls have been so – it's like the, the number of people who respond to polls is just minuscule now. So I think it's so hard for anybody to feel like they have a good handle on what's happening in, in any race. But in Georgia uh, and in Pennsylvania, our, the Times' polls show Democrats – a lead, although not a very big lead. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess he can he can count that as a win if he didn't completely tank after that performance. So you're saying he's held steady? Yeah, he has held steady. I mean, people, you know, he he started out that race, you know, in the summer he had a lead of like six or seven points. And people yeah. thought basically it was in the bag for the Democrats. Dr. Oz is a terrible candidate who's not really even from Pennsylvania. So, you know, I think he has a lot of advantages. And I think we as journalists, because we watch debates so closely, sometimes sort of overestimate how much actual voters care about debates. Yeah. And in the uh, Warnock-Walker race in Georgia, what are the poll numbers saying about that? Also there, the latest polls have shown a small Democratic lead. Um, You know, Herschel Walker seems like he's recovered from the big dip in polling that he took after that revelation that he paid for an abortion. Um, But, you know, the Democrats still seems up by a little bit. Again, if you believe that those polls are accurate. Yeah. And of course, we have a similar situation here with Patty Murray versus Tiffany Smiley. There have been there's been a debate. There's been a town hall. Uh, I I don't see too much movement in the numbers, but I, I think I think it's fair to say that uh, people in this state are pretty surprised at how strong uh, Tiffany's, uh, Tiffany Smiley's showing has been. Well, she's a good candidate and has a good story. I mean, it's a really compa- compelling story to tell. Um, like you, I think that you know the state is blue enough and Patty Murray's well enough known that I don't think she'll lose. Um, but that's a combination where it's, the overall environment is not great for Democrats, and in that case. In contrast to Pennsylvania or Ohio or Georgia, the Republicans actually have a pretty good candidate. And I'm curious, uh, in, uh, now that you're there at the, the mothership of the New York Times, is there a, a company policy at the Times as to how to cover uh, this election, knowing that with the number of uh, mail-in votes around the country, we're going to have a, yet another situation where you could see one candidate winning in the beginning and then two, three days later, a different candidate winning. I mean, I, I'm not directly involved in covering these elections, so I haven't been part of those meetings. But yes, I mean, I think everybody knows that's how it happens. We watched it happen in 2020. And I think the concern is that in places like Pennsylvania, 
you know, or Wisconsin, but the, the Republicans are going to try to rerun the playbook that Trump ran. You know, as soon as their guy gets ahead, they'll try to stop the count or challenge the count. And the concern is that maybe they will be more emboldened to use violence, you know, to use intimidation to try to physically shut the count down, as opposed to just filing lawsuits that didn't go anywhere last year. Do they have, are you going to have, is your company going to have reporters like in all the big races to, to address rumors as they crop up? Yeah, and we're already trying to do that. We had a good yeah. story today about, about misinformation in Pennsylvania. So, yeah, I think we are trying to do that. I mean, it's obviously hard to knock down every single one, but but yes, we will. Um, and you know, the other thing I would say is I'm not sure that the, the, the early vote will be so lopsided blue this year as it was in 2020. If you remember the hugely different way that liberals and conservatives dealt with a pandemic made the sort of, you know, blue shift much more exaggerated. So it could be different this year than it was in 2020. David Farenthold from The New York Times. David, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.